Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is David Massover. He is the founder and CEO of David Massover Sales Consulting, and he's the host of the Driving B2B Sales Revenue podcast. David, welcome. Thanks. Happy to be here. Excellent. Would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your history so they understand where you're coming from? Sure, sure. Whenever I get the history question, I tell people that I got my first sales job in 1991 and everybody groans because that was a long time ago and everyone thinks there's going to be a really long story. But you know, my, my first sales job was really telling. It was terrible. I, I got nothing but product training, yep. nothing but two days of product training for a commodity product. And then the boss showed me my, my desk and my phone, mm. you know, patted me on the shoulder and said, good luck. And that was it. And it was awful. That feels familiar. I was I got into sales in 1988, and that was pretty much my introduction as well. Yeah, I, I go back to that a lot because you know me and everybody else on the planet read read Start with Why, and I go back to that moment for my why because it was just terrible. You know, you're you're supposed to pick up the phone and, and reach out to people and represent this company and know what you're talking about, and I just had no idea how to do that. There's people in the office around me laughing and joking with their clients and their prospects. And at the end of all that, they're writing orders. And I'm like, gosh, how do you do that? (laughs) The good news for me is that I was really stubborn. So I just kind of refused to let this whole sales thing get the best of me. And luckily, one of my colleagues gave me on audio cassette, this is how long ago it was, Brian Tracy's uh, Psychology of Selling. Yep, And it changed my life. Not a red box, box of eight. Yeah, that's it. That is like, like the big uh, the oversized book. Yeah. It didn't change my life because that was such an epic book. It was. But, but the whole idea that you could study and learn and people were talking about this stuff, giving advice, and you could go to seminars. And, you know, over time, I just kind of created my own way of doing things. The way I tell the story now is that I created the sales process. I later learned that someone else had already done that and, you know, maybe better than I had. But I just kind of broke down sales into like, you know, I didn't know how to sell, but I could figure out, well, who should I talk to and where should I find them and, and what should I say to them and what do I need to know and, and, you know, how can I position and all that other stuff. And, you know, over time, you piece all that stuff together and you wind up getting sales. And fast forward practically 30 years later, and that methodology has, has helped me be successful as a salesperson, a sales manager, founder of a B2B startup sorry, a dot-com startup in the, in the web 1.0 era, 1999, a consultant, an author. It all comes down to that basic philosophy of let's just look at what we're doing, break it down into little pieces, really understand those pieces and, and put them together in a way that it works and, and ultimately gets us sales. So I'm, I'm kind of a one-trick pony that goes all the way back to that fateful day in 1991. <laughs> Tell me this, because let's start out with the million dollar question. Why is it so many organizations still operate the WeHat model, which is wing it and hope and a prayer in their sales team? You know, I wish I knew the answer. It frustrates me a lot because it puts people in that same position that I was in. I engage with a lot of companies that seem to approach sales from this, this ridiculous perspective. Uh, leadership, sales leadership, I don't, you know, sales to me, it just, I went through the motions of figuring it out for myself. And so I think if you, if you want to make a sports analogy, and I know a lot of people also groan at sports analogies, but 
Yeah, I think sometimes the people who who are natural at sports are not always the best coaches and the best teachers. They they just kind of were good at it, but they weren't good at teaching at it. And I think many see successful salespeople and from the outside, it looks real easy, but very few people take the time to really understand, you know, so what's really happening and how can you teach someone else to do that? And I think that for the vast majority of the people on the planet, I don't know why sales is just kind of this mystery. We all know we need to go out and get it to make our companies run, but how do you do it? How do you teach it? How do you make people more effective at it? It just doesn't seem to be something that there's a lot of collective knowledge about. And I think that's that's the root of the question and the root of the problem you're talking about. I think there's another problem, which is a misconception that you're a natural born salesperson. There is no such thing for anyone laboring under that delusion. No one pops out their mother's womb suddenly able to take money from people to diagnose problems. Uh, you have to learn that. It's an acquired skill. And uh, another really important point is you're never the finished article. I don't know a salesperson on the planet who cannot get better. And you should never leave a sales call feeling satisfied with your performance. There's always room for improvement. So let's explore that a little bit further. You've touched on you know, having a system was better than not having a system. And I suspect in spite of having Brian Tracy's The Psychology of Sales, there were many bloodbaths that ensued after listening to that uh, set of cassettes. So what were the habits that you de uh, developed over time around your learning? It's really funny. I was just having a conversation with a coaching client today and we went back, you know, a couple of decades to some of these habits. I think there is a habit of learning, but I think there's also, uh, you know, habits around winning. Uh, you know, what we were talking about was time blocking with respect Which to I've learning. learned that earlier. Yeah, I, I kind of came to that about five years into my career. And that was when it was really an inflection point for me. You know, I, I kind of figured it out uh, and I was doing well, but, but I wanted to take it to the next level and getting really disciplined about time. And that kind of came about organically, but I, I never really stopped the habit of learning. And it's not just sales books. You know, one of the most influential books for me remains Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, just some yeah. core principles. I'm re-listening to it now as I drive, drive around, uh, uh, you know, on a daily basis here in, uh, in in 2020. I think there's a natural curiosity that I find in a lot of people who who are successful, and sometimes it's about books, and sometimes it's just about having conversations, and sometimes it's about participating in some of these these groups. So many of which are, are popping up right now, but I think having a curiosity is not only good for learning about the craft learning about your customers, learning about business in general, learning about how things work, learning about how your company makes money. When, when you have this kind of curiosity, you just build up the raw material from which you can, you can have interesting, successful conversations and you, you get into this virtual cycle. It's really interesting. A book by David Epstein called Range confirmed what I've long believed, which is that generalists in environments that require a high degree of creativity tend to outperform specialists. And over the last 17 years, I've worked in 500 different segments of the market. I worked in dozens when I was in recruitment, and I was working up and down the organizations. 
And what I've found is that the exposure to all these different environments, different people, different mindsets, different cultures has allowed me to create connections where other people don't see them. And I think David's point is really important that you should read around your subject, but read broadly and engage in other topics and feed that natural curiosity. So one of the best things that ever happened to me was the advent of Audible. Uh, my eyesight started getting a bit ropey about seven years ago. And so I moved on to audiobooks. And I've listened to nearly 750, 800 books in that time. And the beauty of that is I've been able to read around, for example, the history of China from 4000 BC and understanding how the Chinese had an empire of a billion people 3000 years ago. They think very differently that, you know, our future, if we're not able to adapt and understand how the Chinese work, we're going to be in a bit of a pickle, which I suspect we are, because um, you know, whilst Trump might be doing a trade war with them, that's a blip in their 100-year plan. And you know, the uh, evolutionary biology and you know, reads widely about history and so on. So tell me this, as a manager, what do you look for in new hires who you are convinced will succeed in the role for which you're hiring them? In sales? I think a lot of it depends on the role, but if you want a general answer, I think a lot of it comes down to character, grit, and coachability. If you've got a way to figure out that somebody's just going to show up and do the work and be curious and try, if you want to boil it down to something specific, I think a, a desire to be successful, the, the commitment to do what it takes to be successful, someone who takes responsibility for their for their results, somebody who's motivated, who has a positive outlook. If you can find somebody like that, I think you can, you can put a, a label on them called coachable. And if somebody is coachable, unless the position requires some kind of specialist knowledge or, or very deep network or, or, or you know, something else that requires time to build, I think you can teach people what they need to know to succeed in sales. But if they don't have those, those kind of intangibles and those general qualities, it almost doesn't matter if they have the you know the sales knowledge because sales is really about two things. It's you know can you sell and will you sell? Mm-hmm. And I've met no shortage of people who can sell and and just didn't. And I think anyone who's been a manager and who's hired enough salespeople and worked with enough salespeople, you've seen the person who looked the part, had the great resume, looked like it would just be a, a no brainer, and they completely flop. And, and then you see the other ones who who look like boy, you know, that, that person really isn't going to make it. And somehow they do. I don't think it's always what's on the surface. I don't think it's always what's in somebody's resume. I think it's really that unseen quality of, of determination, grit, coachability, openness. If you can find that in a person and they want to work for you and they want to learn and they want to grow, boy, I'd, I'd hire someone like that any day of the week. I couldn't agree more. And you notice that at no point did David point to skills, historical experience, or historical results, which is what most most job descriptions that have been cut and paste from the previous job description of the person you just fired, incidentally. So get away from the bad habit of looking at skills, experience, and results, and look at things like attitudes, beliefs, values, that whole piece of those, that cognitive ability to be coached, that intellectual humility, 
someone's habits are massive predictors of success as well. And learn to cultivate great habits. The Greatest Salesman in the World by Ogmandino. There's a wonderful quote, which is, you're a slave to your habits, you may as well make them good ones. And the problem is, I think, that often bad habits are learned and then carried over because they're tolerated. So let's look at managers. Why is it so many managers tolerate non-performance for too long, mollycoddle, and are permissive instead of getting ahead of the problem and coaching it out of people? I think there's a lot of reasons. I think two of them that really jump out at me is, number one, most managers have no idea how to manage. Most managers are hired because they were the best salesperson. And if somebody's doing really well in sales and they, they want to advance in their career, you know, turning them into a manager seems like the next logical move. The problem is it's a completely different job. You know, it's, it's very different to be an individual contributor than it is to have a job called, I'm going to help other individual contributors succeed. So I think you've got, and, and, and most of them don't get any training and any support and any mentorship. So I think you've got a lot of people in management roles who simply don't know what to do. And their version of, of training and coaching is, you know, I did it so you can, or here's how I did it, or, you know, come on, do more of it. And, and none of that is particularly useful for, for most people on the planet. The second reason is, like, like you said about hiring, I think most managers, most companies are not very good at hiring salespeople. So you, you consciously or otherwise, and possibly it's otherwise, you get into this whole, you know, the devil I know is better than the devil I don't, because I don't know how to get a better devil. If you don't know how to hire, if you don't know how to replace, if you, if you don't know how to upgrade your sales team by effective onboarding. I mean, you were talking about generic ads, right? I, I posted on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago and put in a couple of sentences about a generic ad. And everyone said, yeah, that's exactly what it sounds like, right? It's a dynamic company looking for a team player with good interpersonal skills and good communication People skills. People are our greatest asset. Yeah, right. You know, yeah, three years of relevant experience and a college degree click here. And it's like, yeah, wow, that's every ad I've ever seen. So, you know, when when companies are going about hiring in this very kind of generic way and they they know their past results haven't been good and they don't know how to 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 do it more effectively, then then you hang on to the people you have because, you know, why get new ones? It's just going to be the same. Well, the, uh, again, I think one of the most important lessons that I've learned through a hard scarf issue is that recruitment is a manager's number one job. It should be a daily activity, but most managers see it as an interruption to their proper job, uh, which is putting out fires. If you hire well, 95 to 98% of your management problems go out the window. Once you've got great people, you then get the best out of them then miraculously, you don't have to don your armor and polish it up at the end of the sales period to try and bring in the uh, the difference between what your salespeople have failed to bring in and what your target is. So you're not run ragged. You're not constantly suffering from upward delegation. You're not tempted into micromanagement because you don't trust your people. You, You can forecast accurately. But none of these things seem to be trained in managers. They don't have a runway. And they don't learn how to manage. And like you said, it is a completely different skill set. You have to derive your satisfaction, not from going out and bringing home prey, but from helping other people meet their full potential and even stretch beyond where they thought their limits were. So the question 
I like to ask managers and CEOs and CROs is, did you make them that way or did you hire them that way? Because I think very often you get good raw talent, but because of the people that you put them with, your C players, who are the ones that are stuck in the office complaining about everything, or your lack of investment in them in that onboarding process, you've created from good raw material C and D players. So when you work with clients, what are you doing in order to get them to see recruitment for the important, the critically important responsibility that it is? And how do you help them ensure that that first 120 days they set people up to succeed? I think, um, like you said, recruitment should be something that happens on an ongoing basis, but it doesn't. And it's mostly because people dread it. I mean, nobody likes going through the hiring process on either side of the interview table. And I think the reason a lot of company leaders and and sales managers don't like recruiting is because they don't know how to do it. So I think one of the first important things that you need to do is to develop an effective process around it. And I think this goes for not only recruiting, it goes for just about anything. If somebody knows how to do something and feels as though they are going to be effective and potentially successful because they have a process that they know how to execute, they're going to execute it more confidently, more willingly, and they're going to get better results. So you really have to start by asking the question, well, you know, how should we be doing this? And is there a better way to do this? And then there becomes more of an openness. You know, okay, let's give this a try. And if you start getting more success, then you create, again, another one of these, these virtuous cycles. Uh, the first 120 days, honestly, that's tough. And I'll tell you why. It's tough because most sales managers, the person who should be the mentor, this person who should be the coach, they've got too many things to do to spend time with the salespeople. And you know, that's the raw material that you have to start with. So if you can't change that fundamental attitude that, that happens higher up in the org chart, if you can't make some realization that, that this is important, and it starts with this idea that, you know, can you teach someone to sell or can you teach someone to be better or can you help somebody be better? If there's a belief that that can't happen, you know, consciously or otherwise, why would you invest time in it? If your idea about sales is, you know, as you, as you said, there's natural born salespeople. If we're lucky, we'll find some and then we should leave them alone to let them do their stuff. You need to change those mindsets and those attitudes before you can address questions like, what should we be doing in the first 120 days? Because otherwise you just wind up with a playbook and some online videos and, you know, the manager off doing whatever they're doing that isn't working with the salespeople. You're working with the salespeople and, you know, that, that only takes you so far. I'd be really curious to find out some tips and advice that you can give people in terms of how to build that strong recruitment and onboarding process. With your three decades of experience under your belt, what are the key points that you would suggest people examine, the questions that they should ask themselves, and the processes they should put in place? So I I have kind of a, you know, uh, roll over on your belly and give up kind of an approach to, to, to recruiting, which sounds kind of funny, but let me explain. I think that we have to start by understanding that looking at resumes and interviewing are not good ways to predict if somebody can sell. They're just they're, not. They're a piece of marketing collateral and they're mainly a work of fiction. Yeah. And people argue with this and people have, you know, clever interview techniques. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm certain that gets some incremental level of success, but by and large, studies show, and most people, if you really look back at your own experience, you're going to recognize 
you know, that's not really helping us because if you look at the statistics of, of, you know, sales turnover and sales success, there's clearly a collective problem. So I think it starts with the ad, as you and I discussed, the ad can't be generic. You really want to stop and think about what is this person going to be doing on the job? And whether you're putting your ad, you know, on LinkedIn or, or anywhere else, you know, what is this person going to be doing on the job? And you want an ad that's specific enough that somebody who is, is experienced with the kind of things that you're going to have them do, they'll look at it and say, wow, that's me. I can do that. I'm interested. And you want someone who is not going to want to do those things to have the opposite reaction. You know, I don't want to do those things. You know, I'm absolutely not interested in that. And that's great. They won't apply and they won't, they won't take up your time. After that, I, you know, I advise my clients to use an assessment. There's a particular assessment that I suggest using at the very front end of the process. I like the objective management group, a sales candidate assessment. It's sales specific. It's customized for the job. It's got a long track record of 90% success rate. So you start your hiring process. You start looking at the resume. You start looking at the, um, you know, you start doing the interviews from a pool of people that are 90% certain that they can sell for your job and they will sell for your job. So when you get your CV, you can look for experience because you know what? Experience does matter. It can shorten ramp time if that's relevant for you. If they have relevant industry experience, they have less to learn. And if there's a lot of industry experience, okay, maybe that's important. Maybe it's not for your role. When you interview, you can interview for things like, are they articulate? Are they intelligent? Do they have the ability to communicate effectively? Those are great things to find out in an interview. And if you already know that somebody has the sales uh, skill and the sales mentality, you know, by the time you get to the end of the process, you're, you're going to do very, very well compared to trying to figure out if they can sell from their last job and, and from how they did in your role play, which isn't terribly effective. Excellent. Okay. So if we look at ongoing coaching, the research on this is very clear. Managers that give their people three to three and a half hours of one-on-one coaching per month have an average quota attainment of 105%. Managers who don't have an average quota attainment of between 40 and 60%. So where managers are complaining that they don't have time to coach, the reason they don't is they're not coaching. Many of them don't know how to coach. So can you define what coaching is not, first of all? Because I think a lot of people confuse what they are doing with coaching. And as a result, they miss the value. So, you know, you go to meet your, your, your manager and they, you sit down and look at your numbers and he yells at you because they, they aren't high enough. That's not coaching. What also isn't coaching is when you go to sit down with your, your manager and, and you're talking about what's happening in your pipeline and they start telling you war stories about, you know, what they did when they were in the field or how they would do it. <laughs> coaching is actually a lot like selling. You want to listen for what the problems are and you want to help find solutions because you know most people are kind of unique. So it's kind of silly to assume that the salesperson that you're coaching is going to be just like you and, and the things that work for you is going to be just like you. Uh, absolutely. And uh, again, coaching is about getting the salesperson to do 80% of the heavy lifting. And I always like to start coaching sessions with, am I here to listen, to ask questions, or give you direction? Because I want to know where they are. 
And when I'm training my clients to coach, I like them to have a weekly cadence of coaching. And two sessions a month are driven by the manager's agenda. And two sessions a month are driven by the salesperson's agenda. And if you'd hired people who have the intellectual humility to ask for help, who want to improve, you'll find that they come prepared. But you have to have that contract in place, that both sides will prepare. You'll agree at the end of each coaching session what actions need to be taken and what you're going to be talking about the next time. So there are no surprises. Coaching shouldn't be a gotcha exercise. The objective of a manager, the number one drive responsibility of a manager once they've hired um, the best people is to get the best out of them. Playing these power games doesn't work. And uh, again, on ride-alongs, how often have you seen the manager turn up and puff up their chest and say, just have a look at how the, uh, you know, the expert does it, son. Um, and they puff up their chest and then they, they do the sale, they take over and the salesperson leaves learning nothing. It's crazy. The best managers when they're doing a ride-along, uh, you know, they shut up in the sales meeting and, you know, where the coaching and training happens is, you know, in front of the windshield on the, on the drive to, to the Absolutely. next appointment. You know, let's talk about what happened. Absolutely. And another useful rule with ride-alongs is the manager always drives. That way the salesperson can concentrate 100% on the questions that you ask and the answers they give. So never have the salesperson drive on a ride-along. Okay. Next question then, in terms of how compensation drives behavior, I'm sure you've seen some complete clusterfucks when it comes to uh, compensation driving the wrong behavior. I'm curious, what do you do when you're advising your clients on how to put together the right kind of compensation to drive the behavior you want rather than creating unintended consequences? Compensation is tricky. I think that you have to start with the presumption that every salesperson is going to try to game it. They just always do. There's always going to be the temptation to try to game compensation. And the other thing that you have to keep in mind is that every time you change it, you're going to create a lot of, of ruffled feathers. The most active compensation exercise I ever went through was when I was a, well, was a manager at this dot-com startup. And we, we probably tried gosh, must have been six or seven uh, different iterations on compensation over a couple of year period. And we tried pretty radically different things. And we had a pretty young sales team and we were pretty open with them. And we gave a lot of lead time before we, before we changed things. But finding that right formula is tricky. I think from a management perspective, if you don't have a good trusting relationship with your sales team, it's going to be tough to change compensation without ruffling feathers. And if you can't change it and tweak it along the way, it's going to be tough to get it right. I'm not sure if that answers the question, but that, that's that been my experience with compensation. It, it has to be built on a foundation of insight and trust. Otherwise, it just gets uh, shoved down people's throats. It doesn't leave a good taste in anybody's mouth. And the salespeople just spend their time trying to game it. One of the things that I've really been wrestling with around compensation is the starting point. We want to drive the right behaviors, but I think by starting with the salespeople, instead of starting with the experience that the customers are intended to have and the kind of relationship that we want with the customer, 
means that I think often the compensation misses the mark. And I'm still mulling this over, and I'd be really curious about feedback from the audience or your thoughts and your questions. Because I think if we want to create lifetime customers who are wowed, they are incredibly satisfied, they repeat their orders, um, they bring referrals, they expand their spend with us, and it requires us to focus on them before us. And I'm just curious, I'm just throwing the idea out there in terms of how you could start with the customer and the outcome that you're trying to achieve in order to create a more effective compensation scheme that delivers the result that the salesperson wants, which is more money in their pocket, and highly profitable business for the company. So I think if you change one part of the system and you don't think about the impact on the others, then you're probably going to get it wrong. Your thoughts? The best, the most well-managed companies that I'm seeing right now are addressing the problem a couple of levels up. So it's not about how do I compensate the sales team? It's about how do I organize multiple departments around the customer experience? So you might have sales, you might have marketing at a very minimum, certainly like customer success. In some organizations, you would also include service, possibly uh, you know, operations, possibly product, possibly everybody. There's one company I know of where the, the VP of sales uh, took a look at the silo mentality in his company, said to his boss, listen, we don't have a COO, we really should have one and their job should be to be in charge of everything that touches the customer. And you know, we need one person to drive that and, and to make sure that all of that remains focused around the customer experience. Once you make that shift, then you can look at things like compensation more holistically. So it's not just about how am I going to compensate the salespeople? It's, it's how am I going to align my organization for a positive customer experience? What are the important KPIs? And from there, you can have a, a different kind of a discussion around compensation. This is what I'm seeing around some of the most well-managed companies that, that I've had the opportunity to work with. I'm seeing that too. And increasing, when I speak to people like uh, Rod Jefferson, Anita Nielsen, uh, Karen Mangia, um, Colin Shaw, it's all about putting the customer at the heart um, and building everything around them, humanizing the whole process and recognizing that um, the, uh, we, we've got to get away from this obsession with efficiency. Um, I think you know, we, we need to be willing to give away a little bit of margin here, be slightly less efficient there to humanize the relationship. I think uh, part of that process needs to be to engage with and speak to customers. And one of the things that still flabbergasts me um, you know, 30, 35 years into my selling career is the fact that marketing almost never speaks to customers. I mean, what the hell is that about? And you know, executives often don't speak to customers. If you're not speaking to your, your customers, how do you know what it is they need and want? And how do you develop your product and your service to keep them coming back? So I 100% agree about the alignment piece and uh, the interdepartmental uh, element. I mean, just along the sales the sales and marketing journey, I think we need to go well beyond that in terms of our thinking 
and look at the customer's journey, which starts well before we ever touch them with any of our marketing or outreach and uh, continues long after we've implemented and um, they're using the product or the service. Tell me this then. You said that you need to speak to the leadership to help them see the unintended consequences of their decisions of being stuck with traditional approaches and so on. When you're looking for clients, how are you qualifying those that have that openness to change? Because I know a lot of people out there really struggle to get leadership involved, managers involved in the whole process of sales development. But without that, all you end up doing really is training their competitors, next generation of uh, top salespeople. So what, what, what sort of conversations are you having with leadership to ensure that they are part of this process and that they're fully behind it? We mentioned Objective Management Group earlier, and uh, Dave Curlin, who, who runs the company, is, is a, a brilliant, brilliant sales tactician and, and a fantastic mentor. And early on in the kind of the mid-2000s from him, I learned a fantastic approach to this kind of a, this kind of a question. And it sounds simple. It takes perhaps the, the generalist kind of well-reading that you discussed about all the different topics and some experience to pull off. But I find a huge difference when I'm having a conversation with, with a leader of, of any kind, leader of an organization, leader of a, of, a, of a department. When we can have a conversation and really hone in on some issues that are important, dig deep into a couple of questions, if I can ask the kind of questions that elicit an answer like, I don't know, or that's a good question, or gosh, I never really thought about that. And it's sincere and it makes people pause and we, we dig into it deeply. That generally lays the foundation for the kinds of conversations that need to happen in order to impact real change. It's super easy to hire a coach, hire a trainer, have a program, make a playbook, get a new piece of tech, blah, blah, blah. But, but I think if you really want to impact change in an organization, there has to be at least some kind of an aha moment that says, you know what, the way that we've been doing things isn't as good as it could be. And we should explore what's going to be better. Not we should buy a plug and play, but we should explore what's going to be better for our organization. And what I found is that when you have the kind of conversation that elicits a gosh, I don't know, that's a good question. And you dig deep, you're usually in a position to at least discuss the possibility of that kind of change happening. Without that, I, I honestly, well, I mean, facetious or not, like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Well, I, I think you've touched on another really important point about the difference between average and great salespeople is great salespeople will ask questions that deliver insight Average salespeople ask questions to gain understanding or gather information. And I think it's really important in the interview and selection process to put the salesperson into a position uh, where you can experience the quality of their questioning. I think too often salespeople turn up and are passive recipients of the interview process. I want a salesperson to sell to me. I want to see what it's like. I want to experience going through being the buyer because they are the seller of their personal services corporation. And what they sell is their expertise 
of helping solve people's problems and go to the bank. And if they can't do that in the interview, chances are they're not going to do it out in the field. Now, to be clear, we're not talking about sell me this pen, right? No, 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 no. <laughs> it's literally, David, really been looking forward to meeting you. Over to you. Yeah. I, I want them to sell me. I want them to interrogate me. I want them to ask me questions. I want them to qualify. I want them to uncover what my pain is. I want them to understand what my vision is, what I'm, what the better future is I'm trying to achieve. I want them to diagnose what they are, what success will look like, so a year, three, five years down the road. I want to know that they can sell. I don't want, you want them to ever. demonstrate it. Yeah, absolutely. And I want them uh, to sell past no. I want them to have me handle my own objections. I want to experience uh, what it's like when I put them in under pressure because that's the person they're going to become. And I, I want to know that they've come prepared. So I want to see their pre-call plan. Um, doesn't happen often. There are times where you have to compromise to some degree. But if someone's turned up with a good pre-call plan and they've taken control of the interview and they've managed my expectations, we've agreed what will happen by the end, either a yes or a no or nothing in between. Uh, we'll agree next steps at the end. And then they go into a really good diagnosis. I've got to tell you, they have my attention. But if they just turn up and say, well, what questions have you got for me? And they passively answer them. That's a three-minute interview. Well, you, you learned what you needed to learn. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to I know that they're actual salespeople. I don't want order takers. I really don't want zookeepers. This is a tough, tough market. And all the clients that I work with, they're operating in crowded, competitive, often price-sensitive, bid-driven markets. And if you're just going to be another sunk cost, I really don't want you on their payroll. It's tough enough as it is for you to give away our margin because you think it's about price. And I, I want to know that you can give me a damn good run for my money uh, when it comes to talking about what your package is. I want you to define it. If you're worth it, I'll pay it. If you're not, I won't. Or if I can't afford it, I won't. But I'll tell you up front. So tell me this. If you've got a leader who is willing to listen because you've asked those insightful questions, but you have a management layer that's reluctant to participate in the same development program, maybe not necessarily together with, but in parallel with the salespeople, what's that conversation sound like? It sounds like WIFM. I mean, it, it, it's what we all started with in sales, right? You, you really have to, I think it, it, it's, it's very common. Right. Nobody, especially in the, these these well managed organizations, not especially, but also in these in these well managed organizations that I that I mentioned earlier, to make that kind of a change or any kind of a change, people have to do things differently. And I don't know any magic trick to make that happen, other than helping people understand how the changes that we are contemplating and implementing uh, will have a positive impact for the the person that you're talking to. I think that is selling. And I think that has to happen internally in the organization as well as externally to your prospects and clients. Why should this matter to me? How is this going to make a difference? Why is this a good thing? Uh, you know, we often call that buy-in. 
it needs to be earned. It needs to be pursued. It needs to, you could do it by cracking a whip, but that ultimately doesn't get you very far. If you have a management team that is, is on board and interested and focused and all rowing in the same direction, then you're going to be able to move the needle. If you don't, I don't know how to do that. I'm curious about the dynamics that you've experienced in the best companies of the relationship with this, uh, between sales and the CFO, sales and the chief operating officer. Because I, I think those guys can have such a positive impact or uh, such a negative impact. Because I, I see good CFOs as being talent managers and talent spotters. Because you know, often the salesperson comes in and they want to get to speak to the CFO. For my money, I think they could be one of the best sources of great talent. Because if a great salesperson comes in, why are they plugging them into the recruitment process and say, look, I've, I think you would do well here. And same thing in operations. So I'm, I'm curious about the dynamic uh, that you've seen in the best-run businesses of the interplay between all these different C-level executives and sales. I think it comes down to the relationship the relationship of the people who are sitting around the small table. If there's a silo mentality, if you know everybody kind of comes to the monthly meeting or the biweekly meeting or whatever, kind of you know gives their report and holds their breath while the other guys do, and you know you're going to have that kind of a dynamic throughout the company as well. On the other hand, when when you have a leadership team that actually comes together and works together to solve problems across silos or preferably in an environment where a silo doesn't really exist, you know, even with a perforated line, it kind of exists, right? You know, we have, we have an org chart. But when that dynamic exists at, at senior management, that's what trickles down to create culture. That's what trickles down to create cross-departmental. Well, what's the opposite of dysfunctional? I mean, functional doesn't really sound like it, but, you know, non-dysfunctional, I don't think yeah. that's a word. Exactly. But, you know, that's where it comes from. Okay. Let's just hop slightly tangentially towards accountability. You've already touched on what bad management does, which is that they beat them with a stick or they disguise it by beating them with a carrot. What does good accountability look like? Good accountability is holding people accountable for what it takes to get the result, not just getting the result. It's very easy to you know, look at the score and say, you did well, you didn't do well. I think to be effective as a manager, what you want to understand at a team level and also at, a, at an individual level is, what are you doing to get there and how can I help? And what commitments are you making and are you keeping them? If accountability is about what it takes to get to the result, I think that you have the potential to impact the result. If accountability is around the result, it's already happened by the time you get there. So often people are focused on the lagging indicators, not the leading indicators. And a net result of that is that the ship's already hit the iceberg and it's um, you know, two-thirds of the way down the bottom of the Atlantic. So again, in terms of the things that you teach your clients to measure that are leading indicators, what sort of things uh, are you having them focus on? As I told you in my origin story, I'm a very process-oriented guy. I, I just tend to look at sales as kind of what do we need to do first and how do we get to the next step? And what do we have to do to get there? And how can we tie the pieces together. And I think most organizations don't have a, a clear, well-articulated sales process. When you do, what you're able to look at is 
conversion ratios between the steps on an individual and on a team basis. And, and I think that's a really telling indicator if you're able to measure it. And if you're not able to measure it, even just to look at it you know, anecdotally in a pipeline review, you're sitting down with your rep and you're talking about, you know, how come there's so many people here? How come there's so many people dropping off between these two steps? What can we do to help get more people from this step to that step? So, you know, what I tend to teach is especially in an organization that doesn't have a well-defined sales process is let's not invent one. Let's look at what you're doing and try to understand what that looks like. And let's start looking at how your people are doing as they move through that. And then start looking at what we can do to help them move through each of the stages and all of the stages better. And of course, you know, when you get to a certain level uh, or a certain level of precision, you can assign some metrics to that. You can assign some KPIs to that. Or even if you haven't yet, you can just assign some commitments to that. But when, when your conversations with your salespeople are about what can we do to help you get through this particular deal? And what can we do at the macro level to help you get through all of your deals more effectively by following these steps and, and, and you know, making these transitions and these segues more effectively? I think that's the start of a really productive relationship between sales and management towards, towards excellency and efficiency and effectiveness. One of the things I'm most excited about is the arrival on the scene of conversational analytics. And particularly now that we're in the lockdown situation, where every single conversation can be a learning opportunity. And the best salespeople using those tools to coach themselves. They're listening to their calls, they're looking at the analytics, and they're working out, okay, what should I do more of? What should I stop doing, start doing, do less of? How can I do things differently? And it flabbergasts me how many organizations are still resisting investment in those technologies, given the incredible power. And if you look at the results, where people have applied this stuff well, and it strikes me that I have a real bugbear around the explosion of sales enablement and marketing automation technologies, because I think they've dehumanized the whole process and they've made salespeople even lazier and distanced them from the customer. And I think it's de-skilled the process and sacrificed effectiveness for efficiency. When we want effective salespeople, more than we want efficient salespeople who are able to churn through bad leads and have conversations with non-buyers, that doesn't strike me as a good investment of anyone's time, money, or resource. So are you seeing people use those tools like Gong and Refract and Chorus effectively? And um, what impact is that having on those organizations? You said it perfectly. You said, you know, when people use these tools well, and I've seen companies use them well, and I've seen them use them not well. Uh, I had one individual coaching client. I wasn't working for the company. I was working for the client. Sometimes individuals come to me and, and we do one-on-one work together. I love those people, right? They pull their credit card out of their own wallet to, Absolutely. to, to get better. Like, man, I love working with those guys. I'd, I'd practically do it for free, but that, that's, you know, practically, <laughs> practically. <laughs> but, um, I can you know, <laughs> but yeah, please do. But you know, at this guy's company, uh, yeah, I won't mention the name, of course, but they were using Chorus to make sure that he was at least 70% on scripts when when he he gave his demo. 
And so I, I think there's a lot of examples of not using this well. And so what we did was we, we, we looked at his script and what he was supposed to do. And we tried to work with the 30% to, to, to weave in some things because it wasn't a bad script. We wove in some things and some little questions and some little pivots and transitions to make it better. But that's a bad use of this stuff, right? Yeah. So I, I think any tech, any tool, they're all agnostic. If you want to be effective with them, you don't start with what most companies do, which is, oh, there's this really cool tool and I saw their analytics and let's just close our eyes and plug our ears and plug it in and things will get better. You know, you use a tool with, with, within your organization effectively when you understand your organization, you know, your people, you know, your process, you, you know, what problems you're solving, you know, your messaging, you know, what you're trying to get across. And then you use those tools to do it more efficiently and to do it more effectively but you can't just kind of slap it on and expect your, your, your lack of discipline and your lack of hard work to be, to be forgiven because you have the latest tech. So I, I, I've seen as much bad use of this stuff as good. And I've seen a lot of good use, just as you described. But a tool is agnostic. It, it's how it's used that matters. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. Right. <laughs> okay. So, David, we've come to the top of the hour Tell me this, what, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? <laughs> well, you know, what I'm struggling with is time, personally. I have three kids and, and one of them has uh, one of these underlying conditions that everybody always talks about. He, he, he's fine, it's, it's not a big deal, but man, we are, you know, my wife and I are both working from home. You know, I'm a one-man operation. She works in a small pri- a professional services, three-person operation. So we're homeschooling and we're working from home. and. Uh, it's challenging just to find enough hours in the day to do what you need to do. So, man, if you've got some great advice for me, I am all ears. Not my domain, but uh, I'm, I'm assuming you've been time blocking your calendar. Well, of course, right? You know, we talked about that. No, my, my wife and I actually do a really good job of kind of, you know, finding the rhythm, but we're deliberate about it. How old is your son? So the son that I have who, who has the challenge, he's six. Ah. Okay, so, so I spend a lot of time being a second grade teacher now, which is you know something I never signed up for. It's actually really great. I mean, we have it, it's it's fantastic bonding time. It's a great opportunity, uh, but you know it's time intensive. What have you learned from it? From the homeschooling? Yeah, I have enormous respect for his teachers. In fact, we had a parent teacher conference just last week, and I told them, boy, you know, I always had respect for you guys, but now I'm really feeling that. But seriously, I, I think what I learned from it is two things. One is it's important to set clear expectations. So when I work with him, sometimes I teach with him, sometimes my wife does, depending on our schedule. We always start by looking at the day and saying, okay, so what do we got to get done? And when do we want to get it done by? And if we get it done by lunch, then you know you can do this and that and the other all afternoon. He's much more focused and motivated and he's much more uh, uh, able to be focused and motivated as we're working together. And, you know, I'm not going to insult your audience by drawing the obvious parallels to, 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 to the workplace. Setting expectations is important. And the other is we try to make it fun. I mean, why should, why should learning anything be, be unpleasant? Why should it be jamming information into your head? Be playful about it. Last week, 
we had to look into the difference between weight and mass. And I'm like, okay, you know, let's, let's find some YouTube videos and, and have some fun with this. And then at lunch, me and, and my son and my wife and her parents, we all started arguing about it. Like, these are facts, right? But we're arguing about it. And we just had fun with it. And he's in there, you know, saying his stuff. And, you know, we play with it. Like, why wouldn't you? Life is exciting. Life is delicious. Let's learn something. Let's have some fun. Obviously, life isn't, you know, nothing but unicorns and rainbows. But being playful and gamifying and enjoying the process, that goes a long way. And how have you, uh, or how are you translating those lessons into your professional practice? You know, I, I'm very good at the expectations part. I'm not as good with my clients into the fun part. What I do personally with my clients is I really, I, mean, I think Bill Clinton would be the, the, the person who comes to mind. Uh, he's often referred to as someone who, when Bill Clinton had his 60 seconds or 30 seconds with you, you felt like he was just nowhere else. He was really present, very engaged. And, you know, maybe that's the third thing that I've, I've, I've not learned from the work with my son, but, but I've tried to, to incorporate into the work with my son. When you're really present with somebody, when, when you're really interested in what's happening with them, you're not distracted by your phone, you're, you're not, you know, accepting the first answer and kind of moving on quickly. You're, you're, you're really trying to be present and focused. People feel that and they appreciate that. And, it, and you know, it, it's not a technique. It's just more enjoyable when, if we're going to be together, let's be together and let's, let's have time and let's explore issues. And I think that's, it's a way that I enjoy living. And it's also something that I, I incorporate into my work. But, and it's fundamental to having authentic communication and authentic relationships. It's being fully present. It's being vulnerable enough to recognize that you have other things going on in your life, but you've chosen intentionally to spend it with this person. And if you're not fully present in sales in particular, people get it. You know, you go to networking events and the person you're speaking to is looking over your shoulder to see if there's someone more interesting. Or the salesperson's thinking about how they can fill the silence with the sound of their own voice. And so they're not listening to the question. Um, you know, these are really critical skills. And I think if you haven't got a child, I'm not suggesting you go and procure one, but uh, children will teach you patience and they'll teach you tolerance and they'll teach you that they will not tolerate you not being present. And I think it's, that's one of the most useful skills that parenting has taught me. We, we just got a puppy four months ago. They're pretty good at that too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> we got a dog about four, uh, three, four months ago as well. And uh, the attention is demanded. So, okay. So tell me this, what, what are you being influenced by reading, watching, listening to, or maybe a great book that you've read that was life-changing? You know, I, I think that the biggest impact that I felt in the last couple of years came from actually starting to meditate. I practiced martial arts before my, my knees went bad. So, you know, quite some time ago. And, you know, we, we kind of meditated there. You know, you would sit down and close your eyes and blah, blah, blah. But I, I never really took it seriously. But a couple of years ago, uh, somebody gifted me a year at, uh, at one of these meditation apps and I, I just started using it. And it's been... Um, it's been humbling how impactful it has been. And I, I think I, I would presume, I'm no expert, I don't study it, I just practice. I would presume that other people have different experiences than I have. 
But for me, the experience has been different than what I expected and, and just so valuable. And the idea of being present really requires, I think, the right stuff happening inside. And it, it's really been a, a big positive for me in this respect. So for anybody listening, yeah, there's a lot of great books out there and exercise and eat your vegetables and all that stuff. But <laughs> giving meditation a try, that's been really impactful for me. Which app are you using? I use Headspace. I'm a big fan of Andy. Excellent. So uh, this isn't about regret, but you've got a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot David, age 23. What choice bit of advice would you whisper in his ear? Yeah, it's, you know, it's right from the matrix, right? Temet noche, get to know yourself. I, I think my older kids are teenagers and, you know, I love them. They're wonderful. But I think when you're younger, it's really easy to believe that you know something without really deeply exploring it. And I don't think that I really got to know myself until I was in my 40s. And I was pretty deliberate about it after going through some, some tough times that I won't get into. But it really changes everything. It changes how you perceive life and, and how you are in your life. So to get to know yourself, but really is advice that I would have given myself at 23. And I probably would have had to repeat it a whole bunch of times and laid it out in, in great detail because, you know, when you're 23, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, not so fast. Really take your time, get to know yourself, know what's important. And it's the advice that I give my kids about uh, what career they want to choose and, and you know, who they're going to choose to be with. You know, when you know yourself, I think you're much more effective at making those decisions about what you're going to engage with. And those are the big decisions in life. I'm minded of the Mark Twain quote. When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. Yeah, you know, my dad was the same. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. David, thank you so much. How, how can people get hold of you? I'm pretty easy to find on Google, on LinkedIn, and on Amazon. I've got a couple of books there. I post every weekday on, on LinkedIn. Would love to engage with people there. Love talking about this kind of stuff. This has been a great conversation. Uh, or you can also just find me at my website, davidmassover.com. Brilliant. Thank you once again. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So this is Marcus Cappy signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please get in touch at marcus at laughs-last.com or get in touch with me via LinkedIn. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone else who would be, then please put us together. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.